Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The coronavirus pandemic could have major implications for international development. As of now, most of the countries that have been hardest hit by COVID-19 have been higher-income countries, places like Italy, South Korea, and possibly soon, the United States. Low-income countries, particularly those in sub-Saharan Africa, have not yet recorded significant clusters of the coronavirus, but the economic consequences of the virus are being felt around the world. So how can low-income countries, including those that have been the focus of major economic and social development efforts, often backed by international institutions like the World Bank, protect themselves from both COVID-19 and its global economic fallout? On the line with me to answer that question and discuss more broadly the potential effects of the coronavirus on global development is Amanda Glassman. She is the Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow with the Center for Global Development and someone I have long turned to to help me understand how international development works. We kick off discussing more broadly the effects of the health crisis and potential economic calamity on lower-income countries before discussing the ways in which the apparatus of global development is preparing to respond. We also discuss one of her more forward-thinking proposals developed before this pandemic for what she calls a Global Health Security Challenge Fund. There have been some really impressive gains in economic and social development since the last major economic crisis over 10 years ago. One of my key questions going into this interview is to what extent can institutions like the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and other multilateral and philanthropic organizations prevent a major reversal of those gains? And to all of you who care so deeply about global affairs, I think you'll find this conversation very illuminating. So I do have a question I wanted to ask all of you. Um, so we are sort of in uncharted times here. My kids are home from school for who knows how long. I assume that most of you who are listening to this are practicing social distancing to the fullest extent possible. And, you know, in times like this, I think community becomes very important. And I do know that over many years of doing this show, I've really felt a profound sense of community has been built. So, you know, to that end, if there's anything I can do to help you through this time to make, you know, social distancing a little less distant, or even just help you fill your time if you're under some sort of quarantine, uh, please just let me know. I'll give you my personal email address. It's markleongoldberg at gmail.com. Seriously, feel free to reach out to me with, you know, whatever is on your mind. I'm, I'm here to help. 
You one thing I have done, uh, it was you know pretty easy lift for me, was put together a list of podcast episodes characterized by topics that are often encountered in university courses on international relations. I put this together mostly for professors of international relations and related fields to help them as they move to online instruction. Uh, but it's really you know a resource that could be available to everyone. If you'd like me to send that to you, just you know send me your email and I'm happy to do so. And if you're with an organization and you're trying to figure out how to organize events uh, around topics that you think might be relevant and interesting to my audience, uh, please also send me a note. I'm trying to brainstorm through ways that I could you know, use the podcast to help organizations and institutions as well uh, as they sort of try to create online communities around what would be normal in-person events. So again, feel free to reach out to me. We'll get through this together, guys. Hunker down, stay safe, wash your hands. And I'm also very thankful that Northwestern University's online master's degree in global health is continuing to be a supporter and sponsor of this show. Now is probably a really good time to get that online master's degree in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. Or you can click on the ad on globaldispatchespodcast.com or just reach out to me and I'm happy to point you in the right direction as well. All right. Thank you all for listening. Now, here is my conversation with Amanda Glassman of the Center for Global Development. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. On the one hand, it's uh, good news for the multilateral system in that it highlights how important that they are, they are um, for both data and experience sharing, policy coordination, et cetera. You know, one of the issues, however, is that because we don't have global government, we saw the limits to multilateral cooperation as well with the World Health Organization issuing reports and recommendations and many governments simply ignoring them or waiting until very late. Um, so they're... You know, if we thought that the multilateral system represented um, an effective check on worst case scenarios, I think it did not deliver this time. That said, uh, I think it's now clear to everyone why they exist and why we need them. And so the question is, you know, can we um, find new ways to operate in the multilateral system if there's not a global enforcer? And, and I think that is kind of an open question for the future. Um, in terms of the World Bank response, I think, you know, the other, there's a couple things to think about when we think about low and middle income countries and how they might be affected. Um, we still don't know very well if there's seasonality in the virus transmission. So that is an open question that we're, we'll, we have to watch and find out. So, you know, are tropical zones going to be as effective as other zones? Um, th these are all things that we don't know. Um, but that said, 
it's clear that even if um, the virus transmission is not as active in tropical climates as it is in the rest of the world, that's still a huge number of people. And um, there's contagion from the economic slowdown happening in China and the U.S. and around the world for low and middle income countries. So it looks very much like we're headed into a crisis situation in terms of the economies of these countries, which are less able to withstand these kinds of sudden shocks. And I mean, it's a sudden shock in the sense that it's happening quickly, but the duration, um, I don't know if you saw yesterday, Imperial College London released their modeling results. These are just epidemiological modeling results um, where they estimate that 18 months of quarantine and social distancing is necessary to minimize the impact on mortality and health systems. So that is a very long shutdown, and that's 18 months based on a vaccine being ready in 18 months and deployed in 18 months. And the um, you know, question is, okay, well, how quickly could we scale up manufacturing? If Even if we did have a vaccine, how soon would it arrive in low-middle-income countries? You know, I think the conservative uh, estimate is that we're headed into a very difficult time economically around the world, um, but that's especially problematic for low-middle-income countries. Well, can I ask on, on, on that point, um, mm-hmm. to what extent does like the 2008 economic meltdown provide a model for how the low or middle income countries might weather this this shock? Yeah, um, we're actually going to post some blogs soon on that, but I think it's in, it's different in about three ways. Um, one, the direct health cons- there are direct health consequences of um, the COVID outbreak, which is significant potentially. Um, and you know, it's possible that it would be in higher shares than what we observe in high income countries with better healthcare systems and better ability to really shut down economic uh, activity and markets. Um, it's different because the immediate economic impact just doesn't doesn't just come from the worst external economic environment, but also, substantial internal economic disruption. And it's different because it's a crisis that spread to wealthy countries from be- from beyond their borders. So we think there might be a longer term impact in, in terms of renewed pushback against globalization of supply chains and movement of people. I mean, how soon would tourism rebound after this? Um, and there are many countries that are dependent on these sectors um, and that remittances might be affected. So I think it's different enough from the financial crisis that we can expect um, that it might be longer and more severe than um, other kinds of economic events. Can you maybe like make this uh, real a little bit or maybe cite an example? Say, I don't know, say a country like Ghana, one of the more robust economies, very fast growing economy in West Africa. What, what, what can we expect to happen to development initiatives and the economy in, in Ghana. You know, I'm, I'm sort of reminded of this Paul Collier quote from one of his books in which he calls war development in reverse. Um, I'm just sort of wondering if we can expect that kind of, you know, reversal of gains that you might expect would accompany something like a war or a conflict. Yeah, I mean, for sure, um, we should expect to see reversal of health gains again. Well, there's two things to think about for developing countries in terms of the direct health impact. One is that a country like Ghana has a relatively smaller share of people over 
70 and 80 years old. So it might be that the mortality impact uh, is not as significant from that perspective. And then there's the issue of whether in that climate, the virus transmits as easily as it does in other climates. So um, we might expect that it's a bit less and therefore that transmission wouldn't be as acute. So those are two things in favor of less significant uh, direct health impacts in Ghana itself. But that said, um, the health system is quite weak and has limited capacity. So in that sense, we might, you know, we might see a glut of people seeking care um, in hospitals and perhaps that crowds out other kinds of needed care that is being received by people, um, including, you know, the most cost-effective kinds of interventions. So, you know, the health impact comes not just from COVID cases, but also from other kind of healthcare that's being displaced. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that. So that's one thing that one might think about in the, in the case of Ghana. Um, the other question is the decline in demand for raw materials from countries like China. You know, we have, I think it was Daimler announced yesterday in Germany that they were planning on closing plants. That means you know, a knock-on effect in the entire supply chain, and that will certainly affect low- and middle-income countries. Um, and then, uh, you know, they were already sort of transitioning from aid, but maybe, you know, if GDP falls again, maybe they'll be back on the list for aid, which is not a good thing. So I think, you know, we should expect to see a reversal of fortunes. Um, and the question is how quickly we bounce back. But again, it's the duration of this crisis that makes it particularly problematic, right? It's not just that banks failed, you know, and there's not too much liquidity in the market, there aren't mortgages. It's that, you know, um, it, the whole demand for the stuff that you're exporting has dropped enormously. There's very little travel into and out of your country. So external investment is quite low. Um, there's no demand for oil or I don't know if Ghana is not an oil. It's like uh cocoa. So like Cadbury chocolates, yeah. you know, well, there might they're, be they're... a spike in demand for chocolate. Who knows? Yeah, I, mean, but... I can see that. So yeah. maybe, that, maybe that's an attenuating, but you know, the question is, I guess I suspect, you know, I, one big question for me is, um, will low and, you know, are we really going to recommend to low and middle income countries that they do the kind of social distancing and economic uh, closures that we're seeing in high income countries? Um, it, you know, is it the case? It's true that their health system capacities are extremely restrained, uh, constrained. Sorry, dog. Problem. No, no, it's no problem. This is the new. This is the new reality. Well, my, right. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure my podcast listeners will get a healthy dose of my children screaming in the background. <laughs> The new reality. Um, So, I mean, maybe it remains to be seen a bit, you know, how badly a country like Ghana might be affected. Um, But, you know, certainly Nigeria with a drop in oil, the airline industry is scaling back enormously, people not being able to leave their houses, no travel, you know, that's really going to affect revenues enormously. So given all these sort of shocks and, and negative consequences to so many economies, you know, many like Ghana that were doing well, um, you know, but are nonetheless still kind of vulnerable. What, what have we seen from the world bank so far? Um, and what can we expect to see from an institution like the world bank in the future? 
Yeah. So we saw the World Bank initially announce $12 billion mainly for health-related interventions, both providing direct support to low-income countries, as well as providing funding to organizations like uh, CEPI that are doing research and development for a vaccine or treatments, um, some funding through to the World Health Organization to enable them to continue to support low-income countries in the response But one thing I didn't see in their initial announcement was attention to the economic effects of the of the outbreak. And um, I know instead we saw that announcement coming from the IMF loud and clear. Then we saw Kristalina Georgieva get together, head of the IMF, get together with David Malpass of the World Bank and that they sort of jointly committed to providing an amount of crisis lending with the World Bank, again, reiterating their $12 billion and the IMF talking about their $50 billion in crisis lending space. Since then, um, there have been more general announcements as sort of everyone's saying that they'll do what it takes. I think that's a good sign. But for these organizations to scale up their work substantially, it requires the member country governments to empower them and extend them the guarantees, the credit, all that stuff. Um, so just to make people people clear, World Bank and the IMF they need money from their member states in order yeah. to you know make these these loans to potentially vulnerable countries. Um, like, do we know sort of what they are loaning to, uh, or at least in the IMF? You, you mentioned the World Bank was had had these funds available for you know scaling up health systems. Um, what what else do we know about where this money will go? So we don't know an enormous amount about where it will go. I mean, when you the IMF announcement suggests that it will go to smooth um, revenue drops that they might experience. One question is, can they, for example, can they get debt relief? Um, you know, does that create more space for some of the sub-Saharan African governments that are in a bit of a, a debt uh, squeeze right now? Um we they've talked about there's some recommendations in terms of policies, but what we don't know is whether governments have decided to proceed with those recommendations. So things like cash transfer scale up to those uh, workers in the informal sector that can't work, but won't, you know, aren't able to take sick leave or something like that. Um, and what, you know, what are the consequences of that or um, uh, business support, support to small and medium enterprises to smooth any drops that they might experience. Question is, how long can you provide support? You know, we're having these conversations in real time in the United States as well. Who's going to get support? How is the support going to come? You know, is it through the tax yeah. system? Is it through the spend? Um, all of these things are sort of being sussed out. I, I do think there's a special role for cash transfers, and I would have liked to see the World Bank out on that more clearly. Can, can you elaborate? What, what do you mean by cash transfers? And yeah. why do you think that this is an effective mechanism? Right. So um, most of, of the economies in Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, they are majority informal, meaning people are not employed by a formal sector employer. You know, they don't they don't get paid through a payroll. They they work uh, in, in the gig, the real gig economy, right? And that's how they survive. And it's not like it's not an option not to work. You don't work, you don't eat that day. So for those people, which are really you know sixty to eighty percent of the population, it's a, it's a large amount. 
Um, it's not like you have a salary that you can use while you're working from home. That's not really an option. So if, if people are supposed to stay home and not work, you're going to have to provide another source of support. And um, we already have programs, what we call safety net programs in a lot of countries, which um, provide a cash transfer, a small amount of money to bring people up to the food poverty line, basically. Um, and that enable them to sort of make those basic investments and keep kind of sending their kids to school if that's appropriate or using preventive health services, um, making, you know, sort of basic investments in their assets so that they can continue to be productive in other ways. And there's some argument for just for those kinds of cash transfers being expanded to a greater share of the population, just because we've seen that they're quite effective in in moving economies along and getting people above survival mode in order to make other kinds of investments that enable long-term human capital accumulation and production and all that stuff. So right now, there are a lot of those kinds of programs, but they're limited to a very small share of the population. So, you know, in a country, like some countries have a, a very, very high coverage of cash transfers, like South Africa, um, for certain classes of people, so older people and um, households that have children, they have this child support grant. Um, but other countries, you know, maybe covers five or 8% of the population. And so, you know, maybe this is a good time to scale up some of those interventions and see if that can help make a difference during this difficult mm. period. So you're saying that like international lenders, like, you know, the World Bank could help governments scale up these programs? Correct. Yeah. And um, they've been pretty well evaluated. So we know what the effects are and we know how to run them very efficiently. Um, unlike other kinds of interventions, you just, for cash, you're simply, um, you, you need a bank account, you need a cell phone. And basically we can get that done now in many parts of the world. Oh, it's interesting what you said at the outset. This sort of mirrors, you know, debates we're having in real time here in the United States about, you know, potentially, you know, I, I think Mitt Romney proposed giving a thousand dollars to every American. Um, you know, I, I saw just before we talked that Kamala Harris is proposing like a five hundred dollar a month, um, you know, transfer to to Americans to weather the storm. But it's interesting to see that sort of domestic debate play out internationally as as well. Exactly. Exactly. And it would be much cheaper internationally, by the way, right? We're, <laughs> we're talking, you know, $20 a month for a family of four rather than something uh, as large as $500 a month or even $1,000 that Mitt uh, Romney was suggesting. Well, I was just thinking, you know, for cash transfers, we do have a number of uh, philanthropists, for example, that are interesting in, interested in supporting the cause. And I mean, this would just be a very direct way to do that. Um, and where we could also do a lot of monitoring and evaluation alongside to find out what are the effects of it, what are people using it on. Um, we'll have to watch and see. I guess, again, it depends a bit on how intense the direct health effects are in a country versus the, the problems related to a global economic slowdown. And and to that point about the potential health effects in many of these low-income countries, um, I was really interested to see your proposal for the Global Health Security Challenge Fund, which you know predates the COVID crisis, and you know it's, it's what this is one of those things where you know the multilateralists and those of us who you know have been following international news and multilateral institutions and global health have been warning for years and years and years about this precise moment. Um, and, and here we are. 
so can you talk a bit about the Global Health Security Challenge Fund and how it would be structured and how it might help in this moment? Yeah, and I think uh, the first thing to say is, you know, there, the myself and the other people who have been involved in developing this proposal recognize that there are a lot of immediate response needs that need to be financed. So um, things like the World Health Organization has an ask out that's only partially financed um, that is for direct support. Um, the Gavi Alliance that provides um, childhood immunization for uh, kids that live in low-income countries is looking for its next replenishment, and that also deserves to be funded, et cetera, right? There's a number of sort of immediate needs that need to be financed. But that said, what my colleagues and I had been thinking was, we we just cannot uh, repeat this experience again. Uh, and we need to think now during the crisis about what are the mechanisms, what mechanisms that we will set up ahead of the next outbreak, because there will be a next outbreak, um, and it could be worse than this one, uh, for all countries to have a fully functioning epidemiological surveillance system, laboratory system, um, contact tracing capacity, uh, control, you know, emergency control center capacity. There's, there's a lot of good things that happened between Ebola, uh, the West Africa Ebola outbreak in 20, was it 2013, 14 and yeah. today. But one thing that didn't happen was, um, that countries in that meantime had done an analysis of sort of what their gaps were in terms of preparedness to response to outbreaks. Um, and those gaps were identified and then they weren't financed and filled for lots of different reasons. But what, what we're proposing with this fund is to create a mechanism, sort of a matching grant and ask countries to put half of the money up themselves so that it's on their budgets and that they could get some of their money back if they make measurable progress in preparedness, meaning in lab capacity, in surveillance coverage and accuracy and related so that's what we'd like to see for one of the outcomes from this terrible episode, that we're sort of ready and creating better incentives, stronger incentives for countries to prepare themselves ahead of what comes next. At this point, though, do you expect that initiative to to sort of get taken up by groups like the, the G7? Well, we'd certainly like to see that. Um, I don't know if we'll make it to this year's G7, but uh, I hope uh, in subsequent years that this is on the agenda. It's it's unfortunately not too soon to think about the next crisis while we're in the current crisis and the sense of overwhelming urgency that all of us feel to get something done. This is not expensive. Um, the cost to do this kind of preparedness was something like a dollar sixty nine per person in each country. So. That's eminently affordable. Um, we need to make it happen. It just hasn't been a priority for lots of different reasons. But now, now that we have uh, it all very clear, what are the huge human and economic consequences of an outbreak like this? We're hoping that we'll see more appetite for the Global Health Security Challenge Fund in the future. Uh, and and finally, um, in the coming you know days and and weeks and even months, you know what indicators will you be looking towards that would suggest to you how this outbreak might affect the economies of lower income countries or middle income countries? So um, one thing that is really noticeable is that most of the epidemiological models have been focused on high income countries. So as the next step, I'm, I'm looking to the World Bank and the regional development banks to be doing some modeling on both the epidemiological 
progress or what what is going on on the epidemiology side, but also the economic side. And uh, one of the areas that we're going to be working on is to try and get the economists and the epidemiologists to talk together. Because um, one, one issue that we were considering was that um, we frequently... Uh, you know, there, there, are, as we were talking about before, there are there are health effects of economic downturns as well, and there's crowding out of only focusing on COVID if that's what's in your hospitals. And so, we really do need to look at the net health effects of of what is going on and what is the best um, policy set of policies to implement, given that these things interact, and we need to minimize both both health and economic damage. Uh, Well, Amanda, thank you so much for your time. This is very helpful. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Amanda. That was extremely helpful and really like clarifying as we move into this new era. And I was just particularly interested in that proposal of, you know, cash transfers. It really does mimic the ideas domestically we're seeing here in the United States. And um, it's just interesting to me to see that um, policy idea is, is global as well. So thank you. Um, and as I said at the outset of this episode, please do feel free to reach out to me. You know, we are in this together. You are not alone. Uh, and anything I can do to help, please let me know. I'm, I'm serious. All right. Thanks. And bye. Bye.